Auto Line this week is underwritten in part by... In this epic battle of fuel efficiency and endurance, we're here to see which hybrid has the best MPG. That's the essence of a hybrid soul. But is there more to it? The Hybrid Game MPG Challenge. And now, here is your host, John McElroy. Want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week, where the conversation is going to be all about General Motors. And that's because my guest today is Dan Ammon, the Chief Financial Officer of General Motors. And welcome to AutoLine this week. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Also joining us today, Tim Higgins from Bloomberg News and Jeff Bennett from The Wall Street Journal. Great having the both of you here as well. Thanks. Dan, what I want to know about is the transformation that's happened at GM. It, it's only amazingly about four years ago the company was in bankruptcy. And now I hear these terms allegedly accredited to you of establishing what I guess you're calling Fortress General Motors, Fortress GM from a, from a financial standpoint. Is that a term that you're using? And if so, what's it all about? Sure. Well, the term we're using is Fortress Balance Sheet. And what that really stands for is making sure the company has fundamental financial strength. Uh, and why that's most important is we're obviously in a product-driven business. It's a product-driven business with very long lead cycles. And in order to be competitive and to win in the marketplace, we need to be bringing product to market very consistently. In order to be able to do that, we need to be investing very consistently through the cycle. So we want to make sure at all times we have the financial strength, both from a balance sheet and a profitability point of view, that we can continually reinvest in the business in order to win with the customers and in order to grow the business. How would you measure where you're at right now? Are, are you at the fa uh, Fortress balance sheet you want or still to grow? From a balance sheet point of view, we're in very strong shape. We, we ended the year with $37 billion of liquidity between cash and available credit lines. So we're in a really strong position from a balance sheet perspective. We have very little debt, only about $5 billion of debt on the company, which for a company of this size is virtually nothing. So the balance sheet's in really strong shape. From a profitability point of view, you know, we're continuing to grow the profitability of the business. We're about the middle of the pack relative to competition from a margin point of view. We're looking to continue to grow that and advance that going forward because it's the money we make today that we can reinvest back into the business for tomorrow. You know, Dan, one of the questions I've heard, too, is that uh, through the bankruptcy, you were able to shed a lot of your debt, a lot of the retiree costs. And I guess some people are wondering why GM isn't even more profitable than it is right now. I know this year you're coughing, calling for a modest profit increase over last year, but what are still some of the challenges that keep you from really getting your financial legs underneath you? Well, you've got to remember that where we are from a product portfolio point of view is we have, at least in the North American market, the oldest portfolio in the industry right now. And some of that was a function of, of not having a fortress balance sheet five, six, seven years ago. So we were unable to reinvest in the business at the rate that we wanted. We have an absolute onslaught of new product coming, as you all know, over the coming months and quarters, really important launches up and down the portfolio all around the world. And that's going to be a major enabler to, to improve our not just our top line in the business, but our profitability in the business as we go forward. At the same time, we have a lot of transformation going on through the company, up and down the P&L from a cost perspective and so on to get more efficient. You know, every dollar that we save in, in, in general and administrative expense is a dollar we can either put back into the product or take to the bottom line. And those are the kinds of trade-offs that we're uh, that we're working through here. So product-led uh, recovery, huge amount of new product coming, a lot of other initiatives going on, and that's how we see ourselves moving from middle-of-the-pack profitability-wise, continuing to move up to, to some of our other peers. 
And when do you when do you really expect that to start taking hold? I guess analysts were suggesting maybe next year when all of the product is in place. Do you see that too? Yeah, it's a multi-year it's a multi-year journey. Some of the things that we're doing on the cost side, for example, they fall to the bottom line quickly. Other things in terms of the product launch and, and the cadence of that is we're really getting into that through the middle of this year, uh, and then we'll see that roll through you know full year effect into 2014. If you look elsewhere in the world, if you go to South America, for example, that was a business that was in a loss-making position back in 2011. We had a huge, same problem there, very old portfolio. Uh, we've launched a whole uh, raft of new product uh, into that market, took some other cost actions as well, took that business from loss-making to profitable last year, and we're going to look to grow on that again here. So in some ways, it's pretty simple. It's product-led, cost control, making sure you got the right product to win in the marketplace with the customer. You see an upside, continued upside in South America. Sales were down a little bit in the first quarter. Four is out, saying they expect to lose maybe 300 million in South America in the first quarter. What do you think? What do you think the first quarter is going to be like for you all? Well, we're going to announce our first quarter results in a, in a, in a uh, couple of weeks, so people will see that uh, see that result there. But from our perspective, the marketplace has gotten more competitive uh, down there. But at the same time, you know, we've gone from having a very old portfolio to a very new one, and that's given us a lot of momentum in the market. Each segment into which we've launched a new product, we've taken share in the segment, we've taken price in the segment. Uh, our overall sales have been down because some of the legacy portfolio that's run off, uh, we haven't yet launched the replacements for that. So it's, it's a little bit of a mixed perspective on the top line, but the new vehicles are proving to be you know, much more successful and more profitable what than what they replaced. Is, what kind of hit is the devaluation of the Venezuelan currency going to be? Uh, we announced when we announced our fourth quarter results that we would have a $200 million special item as a result of the Venezuelan uh, devaluation that will, that will book in the first quarter. Do you think that's growing at all? Is the possibility for losses growing there for that? Obviously, we'll need to see what happens. The situation there is quite unstable. Um, you know, there's new news every day, and we'll watch how that evolves. The big uh, drag on GM, of course, is over in Europe with the Opal operations. Uh, you're on the board of supervisors now at uh, Opal. I'm, I'm curious, as an outsider looking in, what you see GM now doing differently to really get Opal turned around? Because when I look at what the actions that have been announced, it sounds like the same old game plan, which never worked in the past. You're the insider. What's going on differently to get Opal turned around? Well, we have a fundamentally different team on the ground now than we had even just a year ago. We've made a, a lot of management changes. We've brought in people from outside the company, from some of our strongest competitors. Carl Thomas Neumann has just been brought in as, as president of Opal. Uh, we've made changes throughout the management team there. You take that uh, as sort of the first thing that's new and different. The second thing that's new and different is uh, where the product portfolio is at Opal. And everyone says, well, it's going to be a product-led recovery. But in this instance, people come in you know, independently, look at where the product is right now. It's in really, really terrific shape. So we feel great about the product portfolio. Where we have still a fair amount of work to do is on the sales and distribution network, particularly in Germany. Uh, things are going very well in the UK, for example. We've improved our market share year over year in the UK and some of the other countries around Europe. We've made a little bit of ground in, uh, in Germany, but that's where we need to be more successful. On the cost side, we've taken actions that haven't been taken in a long time. Uh, we're closing the Bochum facility. It's the first time a car assembly plant has been closed in Germany since World War II. So when you say what's different this time, some of these things, you know, instead of talking about them, we're, we're getting them done. 
All of that's against a backdrop of a very challenging environment. Uh, we don't think you know, any of our competition is having much more success overall than, uh, than we are from a profitability point of view. Uh, but when you look at the results uh, that we'll, that we'll uh, you know, put up over the coming period of time, we think we'll demonstrate progress to, to where we want to get to. What's your outlook for Europe? I hear some people saying, well, inevitably it's going to turn around, but I don't see what they're basing that on other than hope right now. We're not betting on a turnaround anytime soon. What about the, the the concern over the weekend? Um, you know, how concerned are you? On, you? You've got your list of good things and bad things. How does that rank on your list of, of bad things? Uh, it's something that's evolved very, very quickly here. So it's something we're keeping a very close eye on. You know, currencies move around all the time. And what we've tried to do more generally is not build a business model around a particular currency being at a particular place. We've seen that work both directions. We saw it really hurt the Japanese over the last couple of years when the yen you know, surprisingly strengthened. All of a sudden there was a rush by a number of them to start to localize more you know, in case you know, that, that was the new, the new norm. Now we're seeing a very rapid move back in the other direction. So you know, we'll have to see what the competitive reactions are, how that plays out. We have a fundamental philosophy around the world to, as much as possible, build where we sell. And, and we do that for a couple of reasons, and one of them is FX, which is if we're building and selling in the same currency, we're not going to get whipped around if, in the way that you would if you're building in one currency and selling in another. I've seen some estimates saying maybe there's a $5,700 price advantage that the Japanese would have over, uh, over Detroit. Is, I mean, that's a lot of opportunities for new content or advertising or lowering prices. Uh, I mean, that could be a major a hurdle for GM as it, it, it brings new product to market. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a change in the competitive dynamic. You know, currencies have traded back and forth every day for the last several years. It's not like all of a sudden there's just been some new development. I mean, things move around, you know, competitors' relative positions uh, and their ability to play in the marketplace changes as a function of that. So we look at it, we re react to it every day. This is not a one-off event, per se, from our perspective. You know, along with that area, you know, there's a lot, a lot of static out there about China and what's going on. Is it slowing down? Is it speeding up? Is it same as last year? I know it's kind of early yet in the year here, but coming off the first quarter, what are you guys seeing as far as growth? Is it kind of slowing down like some have thought or... What do you think? Well, last year was a relatively low growth year in China, and we, we grew somewhat faster than the market increased our share last year. We've actually seen the industry grow a little bit faster than that this year. Mm -hmm. um, I think the GDP figures were out the other day, 7.5% odd for the, for the first quarter. So you know, relative to most other places in the world, that's pretty healthy growth. So you know, we see modest growth. We see our market position continuing to improve. GM has some pretty ambitious targets, uh, 5 million sales by the end of 2015. Um, does GM need to open more plants than it's already announced? Does it need to make some acquisitions there to gain capacity? We have a long-term capacity plan uh, that's in place. We're adding plants uh, on an orderly basis you know, to meet what we think the capacity requirements of, of the market will be for, for, for our vehicles. And obviously, market dynamics change, volumes move around, and we adjust course to make sure that we're in balance from a supply and demand point of view. And that's, that's a goal that we have not just in China, but a goal we have all around the world. Yeah, I mean, the government's definitely pushing for consolidation in China. Is that an opportunity to, to make some acquisitions? I think we're very comfortable with the portfolio we have, the market position we have, and uh, you know, we're going to look to capitalize on that. G GM North America is still the economic powerhouse for the corporation. Uh, certainly in the last quarter of last year, even though sales and revenue went up, 
profitability dropped. Can you explain what's going on in North America because it is so critical? Well, if you look at 2012 in total relative to 2011, so full year rather than you know, one particular quarter, uh, absolute reported profitability on an EBIT adjusted basis, which is our main operating profit measure, was down slightly, but there were some significant, what I'd call non-operating items in there, particularly relating to, uh, to, to lower pension income uh, in 2012 relative to 2011. So if you look at the core underlying performance, it was an improvement 12 over 11 and an improvement 11 over 10. And one way to, to check that, if you like, is to look at the free cash flow that we're generating and cash flow generation was higher in 12 than 11. So despite the aging portfolio, we were able to improve the underlying performance year over year. We've got all the new product coming this year, which will give us an opportunity to build on that going forward. We're also seeing Toyota and Volkswagen in particular. It looks to me like they're starting to pull away from the pack, a pack that GM used to be a part of, you know, one of the top one, two or three companies in the world. How do you compete with especially the Volkswagen juggernaut? Well, based on the numbers I just saw, I think the first quarter we were number two behind Toyota and ahead of Volkswagen. So it's, it, it's very much a group of three. Um, you know, the way we compete with them is the way we compete in every market that we're in, which is are we putting a winning product in the market uh, in whichever segment we're talking about? Are we offering that at compelling value to the customer? And does the vehicle have great quality that causes the customer to come back? And if we can do that winning product, great value proposition, the right cost allows us to make money, great quality, you know, we'll win with the customer and that's how you grow the business. The gap between GM and, and VW sales in the first quarter narrowed to, to 90,000. Um, is there, are you facing greater competition from VW? Are they, are they getting closer? Do you, do you think maybe this is the year they overtake GM? We, we'll see as the year unfolds. I mean, we don't make predictions one way or the other. You know, we compete in the marketplace every day and our goal is not to be just number one on a sales basis. Our goal is to be you know, profitable in every segment in which we operate around the world. And uh, uh, you know, this is not just a top line, number one goal race. You know, I think you, uh, people have given you credit for helping to get GM's financial house back in order. But I'm wondering now, you know, you, you hit a lot of the things right out of bankruptcy that need to be taken care of. But what are some of those uh, harder to get to areas that you're concentrating on? Is there some cost that you're really looking to begin to squeeze out of the organization? Really, the, we're looking up and down the P&L for cost opportunity. But when we talk about cost what we're focused on is how do we take cost out of the business that doesn't compromise the value proposition to the customer. So to give you an example, you know, on back office activity, transaction processing, so on, every dollar that we save there while still getting the job done is a dollar we can either reinvest in product or take to the bottom line. When you go to the product side and look at cost that's inherent in the vehicle, you've you got to ask yourself, what does the customer care about? Does the customer care if we take a feature out of the car? Probably yes. Does the customer care how many miles a component was trucked before it got to the assembly plant and was put into the vehicle? Probably not. So we've got to find those things where we can take advantage of our economies of scale, save money without compromising the quality of the vehicle uh, and the value proposition to the customer. Because if we start compromising the objective of having a winning vehicle, then you know, we know how that ends and it's not good. 
so like platform sharing that you you have done before I mean can you do more of that still yeah we, we have a we have a, a big untapped opportunity across General Motors to take advantage of the global scale that we have mm. very few companies have a hundred and fifty billion dollar business in one line of business around the world and that's a huge asset that we have that we get to really fully capitalize on and as we look at what Volkswagen for example is doing you know they are further along on that journey than we are so we still have a big opportunity ahead of us Dan, one thing that fascinates me about you is you've spent very little time in the automotive industry, but you're kind of a car guy. And in fact, I was really pleased and surprised to see that you're a certified test driver, certified at the Nürburgring Nordschleife, a very famous racetrack in, in Germany. I've driven it myself. It, it's a handful to go around there. Talk a little bit about that as somebody who spent so much time in the financial community, but, but clearly has got a passion for cars. It's just critical in this business that people at the top of the company have a passion for the product and need to be involved in it, um, not just at a superficial level, but to really understand it and, and to really be involved. Um, and it's important for the rest of the organization to see that level of involvement and, and interest. And you know, when, when we're working with the engineering organization saying, yeah, here are some of the financial things that we need to get done, if, if, if I've shown an interest in what they're trying to do, they will have a, a much greater interest in what I'm trying to do, and it's just it's better for everybody. I've got to believe, too, that when they say, this is an investment, not adding cost to the car, but we need this. If you understand the product, it makes it easier to assess whether they're really telling you the truth or not. Well, there's some of that, but to me it's more about do we all understand what we're trying to do as a company, which is what is the value proposition that we're all trying to get in front of the customer? What defines a winning vehicle in this segment? And understanding that value equation from the customer's point of view is one of the hardest things to, to, to really pin down. Because it's easy to say, well, let's have a cost target and start pulling things out of the car, but that, that's not going to work and that's been tried before and we know that's not the path to success. So the question is, what are the ways that we can get cost out without compromising that value proposition, without compromising the integrity of the brand DNA of the vehicle and what defines a winning vehicle in those segments. And the more we all understand where each other's coming from on that, the much greater chance we have of getting to the right answer. You, the U.S. government has begun its sell-down of uh, General Motors shares that it owns. A GM bought what, five and a half billion of its shares last year, and, and we've seen on a monthly basis kind of a sell-down begin. Do you have any expectations of when that's going to be completed by any chance it could be earlier than announced? Well, the, the Treasury said back in December when uh, they announced uh, the buyback by us and their plans to exit, uh, that uh, it would be 12 to 15 months was the timeline they put on it, and there's, there's nothing I see that changes that at this point in time. The do you think that as they sell down and more shares are available in the market, do you see an opportunity for more investor uh, in, in, in mutual funds to be investing into GM and that sort of thing? Sure. I mean, every share they sell, someone's got to buy, right? And so you know, we've seen a fair amount of trading activity in the stock you know, from the point of that announcement. Uh, you know, the, the, the daily trading volumes have picked up. Um, obviously, the shareholder base will, will continue to evolve. Everyone knows they're selling every day, so you know, there's, no, there's no surprise factor in there, and I think they'll work their way through on an orderly basis. When do you think you might be able to return to the S&P 500? Uh, whenever the S&P 500 Index Inclusion Committee determines that that should happen. Do you have any hopes that it's this year, next year? Uh, yeah, we, we'd, we would hope to uh, have that happen as soon as possible, but that's completely out of our hands. Yeah, along that lines, we were wondering, too, if, if people, if mutual funds had been sitting on the sidelines waiting until the government got out, if you, you know, and dealing with your uh, New York colleagues there, if that's been a problem that some investors really haven't 
gotten in because of the government stake. I think the uh, what we saw before the announcement of the buyback was a concern over the uncertainty as to how, when, and through what means would the government get out. I think the announcement in December where we said, you know, we see value in the stock at this price and we're willing to buy a chunk of it back. And that part of that is to facilitate an orderly exit for the remaining government holding. I mean, you saw the reaction in the stock. It went from 25 and it's traded above that price basically, you know, continually since then. Um, uh, above the buyback price of, of 27 and a half. So what, what, you, what you've seen is, you know, some significant appreciation in the price, I think it largely attributable to the lifting of that uncertainty over how and when they're going to get out. Wouldn't it be a smart move, though, for GM to go back to them and say, look, we'll buy the rest from you and we'll just get out now. And I know Dan Ackerson had said that he didn't want to do that, but we, we, think, we, we think the plan that's been announced is a good balance between us buying some stock back, them going through an orderly disposal uh, in the marketplace over the next 12 to 15 months, or well, from December 12 to 15 months, um, and that seems to be going according to plan. General Motors had a number of uh, joint ventures and agreements with other car companies. Before you got there, Toyota, uh, Suzuki, <laughs> Isuzu, Subaru, I can't say that it ever did anything good for the company. And so I'm curious why Opel would tie up with PSA to start sharing platforms and do all the other stuff that never worked in the past. Sort of, uh, again, what's different this time that, that would make this alliance work? Well, previously, as I understand it, you know, there was a whole series of, of, of alliances, you know, a meaningful number of them. Here, what we're talking about is one specific alliance that's centered around specific products and for a specific market. Uh, and a specifically identified set of savings around that. So it's it's pretty well defined what we're trying to do. Uh, it's a smart way to bring to uh, market at a lower cost than if we did it on our own, you know, a handful of products, particularly some that are more Europe specific um, and don't leverage themselves well uh, to some of our global architectures. And, you know, along the same lines, we announced a couple of days ago a collaboration with Ford around transmissions. And again, I think you're going to continue to see examples of this around the industry where joint collaboration on a particular technology or a particular product segment allows both parties to get there at a lower cost, offer the customer better value than if they were trying to do it on their own. It's got to make things more complicated, though, too. When you start to put two companies together, there's a lot more meetings, a lot more. It can slow things down. And uh, a lot of uh, automakers have announced anticipated savings of working with another company that, in many cases, never materialized. Yeah, there's a complication factor for sure. And, and before you take the step forward to enter into something like that, that's a lot of the trade-off that we discussed, which is, you know, here are some benefits and savings, and we can either get to market less expensively or faster or a combination of those. But in order to, or as part of the trade-off of that, it's going to be a bit more complicated. So those are the things that we have to weigh and assess. And in, in the two examples we've talked about, the PSA situation and then the transmission arrangement with Ford, we concluded in both of those that we can get a better value proposition in front of the customer and sooner uh, than if we try and do it ourselves. Arguably, the most important vehicle you're doing this year is the redesign of the Silverado, uh, probably one of the most profitable vehicles GM has. Um, how much of this new vehicle can it help narrow the gap between uh, Ford and the U.S., the Ford F-Series in sales? Do you, th do you think you can overtake the F-Series? Uh, I'm not going to make uh, specific sales predictions, but what I can tell you is that we have a very high degree of conviction that there will be substantial closing of, of uh, the gap that we've had 
uh, to Ford, uh, not just from a volume perspective, but also from a price point of view. Mm. So we've, we've had uh, meaningfully lower transaction prices. That's been for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, we're at the very tail end of the life cycle of this truck, and that obviously has price implications. But secondly, we've been constrained in terms of our ability to offer the product mix that the market's really been looking for. If you think about crew cab in particular, go back mm. 2000 timeframe, you know, crew cabs were 0% of the market. Now they're two thirds of the pickup market. We haven't had from a manufacturing flexibility point of view, the ability to, to meet that mix and we will have it in the new truck as an example. We also have an opportunity from a trim level perspective uh, to do more things than we've done historically. Uh, we also have an opportunity, given that we have you know, two brands in the segment, to widen out the differentiation between GMC uh, and Chevrolet, uh, and to, to really bring more bandwidth to the marketplace and a richer mix for the customers. Dan, why did you come to General Motors? And I ask that because the company's been complaining that you know, because of the government involvement, it's had salary caps put in place. Uh, there was some uncertainty about it, and yet you chose to come to the company. And I'm just curious what you saw in GM that lead, led you to do that. I couldn't think of a more exciting, more challenging uh, industry and company to be involved with. And it, it's really as simple as that. This is a, it's such a dynamic business. It's such a complicated business. It's such a challenging business, but that's what makes it fun. And there's an opportunity to make a really big difference to a really big company, the team that we have in place to, you know, to get after that. So we're all we're all pretty pumped up about the opportunity we have in front of us. It's uh, it's not easy every day, but uh, we're glad to be here and glad to have a chance to make a difference. And I got to believe that you're you're thinking the compensation will come. Yeah, at some point down the road, but that's not the reason I'm here. When you go and you talk to those New York bankers, what are you, what are you telling them about GM? I mean, what are there still their questions as far as whether or not this is a company to continue to invest in and and that kind of thing? And we're down to less than a minute. Uh, what I'd say is that from a uh, from, from an investor point of view, uh, the most important thing we can do is put the results up on the board. So as we demonstrate that we can grow the business, that we can win in the marketplace with the customer, bring those results to the bottom line, improve the profitability, successfully reinvest, and as we develop a track record of having been able to do that, you know, that's what will speak. The results will speak for themselves. And on that thought, we're going to have to wrap it up. But Dan Ammon, thanks so much for coming in and explaining what's going on from a CFO's standpoint at General Motors. Thanks for having me. And Tim and Jeff want to thank the both of you, too. And of course, want to thank all of you for having tuned into AutoLine this week. AutoLine This Week is underwritten in part by... In this epic battle of fuel efficiency and endurance, we're here to see which hybrid has the best MPG. That's the essence of a hybrid soul. But is there more to it? The Hybrid Game MPG Challenge.